0: your Bibles turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we'll read from verses 4 to 9 this morning that's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 9 as we continue our look at the Trinity and this is the second part of this series. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to Him. Father, once again, we thank you for your precious word that you have given us, that you've preserved for us, that we can trust with all of our hearts minds, strengths, and we know that it is a story of the wonderful grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning as we seek to learn more of you, and as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our lives. We ask that you be glorified in this message and in every choice and decision we make. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel had been in Egypt for some 400 years, and now found themselves wandering in a wilderness on a circular, sort of a circular trip on their way home to the promised land after God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. From the beginning, God had made it very clear who He was. While the nations around them, much larger than they and much mightier than they, believed and trusted in many, many gods the God of Israel made it clear that they should only believe in him, the one and only. While the other nations saw their power and the battle between themselves and other nations as a test of the power of their gods battling each other in the background, instead the God of Israel declared that there was no contest at all. While the world saw the God of Israel as a relatively insignificant God, because he had associated himself with a small group of people, this God made very extraordinary claims about himself, unlike the other gods of the other nations. And while the vast majority of the world's gods have been forgotten now and not worshipped anymore, this apparently small Canaanite God, who is a God of a very small people, has outlasted them all. His words have been transmitted and copied more times than any book in the history of this world. His teachings have influenced this world more than any other God in the history of mankind and more than any other person in the history of mankind. This God has revealed himself in the pages of his book as a trinity. And this week, we're continuing... Our series on this subject. I hope you enjoyed last week and I'm sure you'll enjoy this week if you enjoyed last week and I pray that you'll, uh, you'll gain a lot more knowledge this week about this, this uh, topic. So last week, let me give you a quick recap. We discovered that the God of the Bible is a thrice holy God, three times holy, and the angels that surround his throne cry out continually, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. We also saw in Scripture that a right understanding of God is essential if we want to worship Him properly. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So in order to worship God properly, you need to understand the truth about Him. You can't worship Him as something other than what He is. And the only authoritative book, the only place you can really go in order to understand the truth about God is His book, the Bible. And the Bible, we discovered, is, was not about angels. It's not a story about creation, not even a story about man, even though men and angels and creation are all in there. We are characters in His book. No, this book is about Him and how wonderful He is. And the more you meditate on God and you, you read his word and you think about what he said about himself, you'll come to a very similar conclusion to King David, who tells us in Psalm 139.6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We saw a number of illustrations <clears throat> that people have used from everyday life in order to help us understand the Trinity. But all of these really fall short. None of them was really adequate to explain God because they're common things or finite things used to explain an infinite and perfectly unique God. But nevertheless, if they help us a bit, then they're useful. We also looked at the Athanasian Creed. The person who tried to, who attempted to define the Trinity, to write it down as clearly and as as, as carefully as he could. Um, but for our purposes today, um, and for this series, we're going to continue to look at um, God's book, and in this book, God has given us a huge amount of information regarding His identity and who He is. So we'll be looking in His book in the Bible to find the pieces of that beautiful mosaic. And if you know what a mosaic is, it's essentially uh, using tiles and little bits of tiles to make a picture, bit by bit, the picture forms. It's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, The Bible is a bit like that when it comes to the identity of God and, and who He is and what He's done. You need to be able to find those pieces. And my prayer is that as we find those pieces and we put them all together, that the, this incredible mosaic of God's identity will be revealed more and more to us uh, as we see the Trinity right in front of us. So let's uh, continue now and define what the Trinity is. So The definition of the Trinity is that God is one. There aren't many gods, there aren't a multiplicity of gods, there is only one God. But we also know that the Father is God, the Son is God and the Holy Spirit. Is God, And these three are actual persons or identities that the Bible defines as being God and as persons or identities that can interact and do interact with each other. We will look for evidence of their distinctive roles today in creation, in history, and in salvation. In this sermon, we will see that God has left amazing clues about himself which point to the, his plurality in His oneness, in His perfect oneness. So let's begin. The first part of the passage that we read today um, goes like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The first part of this passage, uh, the first two verses of this passage, or the, the, the main part is the first one, is um, is called the Shema, okay, or Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Shema, a call to, or hear, and hear this, Israel, and this Shema is the centerpiece of the morning and evening prayers of the Jews, even to this day, from then, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord, now, just to make something a little bit more clearer to you, for those of you who don't know, where we see the word Lord in that phrase, you'll notice that twice the word Lord is written in all capitals. Not a capital L and a little O, R, and D. No, they're all capitals, and it's done twice. That word Lord is actually the name of God, the, what's called the tetragrammaton. You see, in the Hebrew text, God's name is composed of four letters. That's where we get the word tetra from. Grammaton letters, four letters. God's name, his actual name, is written as four letters. Yes, there's only four letters. And they're read from right to left. And those letters are Yod, He, Wa, and He. There's no vowels in between God's uh, these consonants. they are actually consonants. And probably the closest letters you can get to those are Y, H, W, H in the English uh, vocabulary or, or in our uh, alphabet. So there's no vowels between those consonants. And when the Jews wrote the name of God in their Bible, whenever they would read it, and they still do this now, when they get to that name, they don't read it. Instead, they replace it with Lord, because that name is so—they're so—is so reverent. It's so holy; they they dare not speak it out loud. So instead, when they get to that place where the name is, well, we've got Lord, which is the four letters, okay? Um, they don't read it. They instead replace it with the word Lord. In keeping with this tradition and with the reverence towards God's name, the English translators of the English Bibles, almost all of them, including the King James Bible, have placed or replaced the name of God, that, that tetragrammaton, with the word Lord. So we would know that's the place where God's name is. Now, it's not to hide the God's name because we know what it is, but it's to show reverence towards His holy name. And on top of that, it's probably pretty difficult to, to pronounce his name or to get it perfectly right. You see, you may have heard God's name pronounced or, or, or written as Jehovah or Yahweh. Which are the two most common ways of saying his name from an anglicized point of view? <clears throat> These are the two most common. You see, Jehovah is also grabbing those four letters and putting in between as on I or other or another word in between, taking the consonants or sorry the the um the vowels and putting those in between to come up with a name that we can pronounce easily, so Jehovah or Yahweh, fairly close, but maybe not exactly right. What's an interesting note about his name, these four letters, is that it seems to correspond very closely to the phrase that God told Moses. Uh, to tell his people Israel about who had sent him. So when Moses asked God, when I go to my people, who will I say has sent me? God's response to him was, I am that I am. What's very interesting is that his name, those four letters, Y-H-W-H, corresponds very, very closely to I am that I am in the Hebrew as well. So, just something of interest as a side note for you this morning. But let's take a look at this verse a little bit more closely. Okay, so, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, what's interesting in this one verse, which defines the monotheism for all Jewish believers the Lord our God is one Lord, He's, He is one. Okay, it defines monotheism. What's funny about it is the word one. You might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? How does the word one have to do anything to do with the Trinity? Or why is that any special? Well, the word for one is not the same as the number one. It doesn't mean uh, the Lord our God is the number one or only one thing. But the word one that's been used is a sense of unity or unity. Indivisibility. Okay, so we use it the same way in English. So Deuteronomy six four says, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy all thy might." So the word, both in Hebrew and English, instead of meaning one as in one thing, actually means one as in united completely together and we use this for this word one in the very similar ways many many in many many ways many uh, many times so when we say our football team played as one it doesn't mean that it was one person it means that they played in unison together and worked perfectly together in fact that same word that's been translated one into English is used also in other places in the Bible and is translated the same way in many other places in the Old Testament. I'd like us to have a look at some of those so you get the understanding of what we're talking about. So let's turn turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. So it says there in Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 9, and God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. So, the first example of God is I want you to see how many waters are there? More than one, right? It doesn't. It doesn't say let the water under heaven be gathered together. No, it says the waters, multiple things, gathered into one place. Okay, that word "one" is exactly the same Hebrew word, and used in a very similar type of way. And it's an interesting analogy even for the for the Trinity. Because the Trinity the definition of the Trinity is that both the, all the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same substance. they are all God, they are not something other than God, and water, all collected from various places into one is actually a picture or we saw last week can be a picture of God because water, you remember can also um, exist as three different phases. it can exist as. A solid, a liquid, and a gas, but it's still always water, always the same substance, just looks different, and can be like that at the same place or in different places. Tell me another another example. Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four. Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, says, "Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife." And they shall be one flesh. Now, here we definitely have two people, but they are said to become one flesh. There's our word for one. The two have become one. Do you see how the the word pictures a number of things united together? And I'll give you one more. Genesis chapter 11, verse 6. It says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they all, they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. You see the word for one? Once again, this is one people. But it's made up of many people, but they're identified as one group of people. Even the language is one. So that that word, one, in the Hebrew is translated one into English and can mean, really means a unity, a togetherness. Now, I'm not going to sing you a song, but you're going to be familiar with the song if you live in Australia. We are one, but we are many. And from all the lands on earth we come. We share a dream and sing with one voice. I am, you are, and we are Australian. You've heard that, no doubt. During, um, during celebrations on Australia Day. You've probably sung it yourself or you've seen it on TV. We are one, but we are many. And from all the lands on earth we come, we share a dream and sing with one voice. That's the idea here. That's the word. We are one. But one as a people identified as one. So this is an interesting word. Why would God use a word that seems to illustrate God as a unified being rather than just a single one. Oh, because we find from the very beginning of the Bible evidence that God is not just a single being, but is a bit more complex than what we imagine. Let's continue. What makes it even more intriguing is the Hebrew word that translated for the word God. You'll see, see that phrase. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 with me. And we're going to find something really amazing with these, with these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. See the word God? Okay, well, that word is a very interesting word. The word that's used to signify uh, God is the word, in this, is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. You may have heard that word before. It's. It's also the place that we get, or the word, that we get a lot of God's other names from. So you may have heard the word Al Shaddai. See the Al? That is the word for God. God something. God God does something, or God is something. Um, And Elohim is the word. When you see the word God translated in your English Bibles, that's coming from the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is a Hebrew word, but what's interesting about this particular word is that it's plural. It's plural. Now, plural means more than one, which is an interesting thing. You see, there's another word for God, which is in the singular form, and that's Eloah. So Eloah is the singular form. Elohim is like a plural form. But this is the word that's almost exclusively used for the word God. You see, the only time Eloah is used is in the book of Deuteronomy. So you had to get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, all filled with the word God as Elohim. But why use a plural word for the to refer to God? Doesn't that confuse things? Well, it's obvious that the scriptures don't point to the belief in many gods. So why use a plural form for God at all? Because from the very beginning, the scriptures have pointed to one God in plurality. Now, let's just have a little bit more of a look at this next verse on top of this. What we have to make things even a little bit more fascinating for us is that God calls us to love him. Okay, and to love him with all of our being, to love him. And the essential thought here is to love him completely. And in order to love him completely as a unified being, he describes this completeness as having three facets. In order to love God, we are called to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul and all of our might. So to love God completely as one, we're asked to fully do three things. You see, he's almost planted this thing over and over again in this specific way. You see, love is a thing. Love is one thing to love God, but to love him three ways shows the completeness that God calls us to, to love him. And when the Bible says that the Lord our God is one Lord, oh, the uh, the essence here is that he is a complete unity. He is one, but he is a unified one. So in two simple sentences, which are is meant to represent and signify the uh, monotheism of our faith, there are, Plenty of things which point to a multiplicity in one. We have the word for God in plural. We have the word for one, which is a compound word or form. And we have the expression of complete love as having three facets. And this brings us to how God refers to himself in Genesis. Turn with me right back to the beginning of the Bible and let's have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're gonna find some more interesting things here. Genesis chapter 1. Now, what we remember, what we're looking at is yeah, are signs and evidence that God is a Trinity, that God is three in one. Okay. Genesis chapter 1. Now I want you to pay attention to how God creates here. And, and you'll notice the beginning of each verse, it starts off a very particular way. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's fair enough. Now go to verse 3 for a moment. It says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Look at verse 6. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11 And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Look at verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Verse 15, And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven. Actually, have I read the same thing? No, to give light upon the earth and it was so. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life And fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of the heavens. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Did you notice something common to all of those? Every one of those verses where God is creating something says that God simply speaks that thing into existence. In fact, God has spoken the whole of the universe, including all the laws and everything within it and out of it, into existence by simply speaking it. That's how powerful uh, the God that we serve is. We didn't have to take out a hammer and nails and start hammering away or, or do any physical exertion. This God just simply speaks things into existence. That's how how powerful God is. But the reason I've shared all those verses with you, okay, is so I can contrast it with this verse. Have a look at what happens when God decides to make man in his image. Look at verse 26. And I want you to have a look at what's different about it in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and said it says and God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth did you notice know something different there and something a bit strange when God decides to make man he first has a conversation with himself. Now, I know that a number of us have a tendency to talk to themselves or to talk to ourselves. We may be thinking out loud and you may be talking to yourself while you're doing something. Or when you're working something through your mind, you say, oh, tomorrow I might have to do this or, or how about if i work it like this? And sometimes we end up talking to ourselves. That's because as human beings, we have the mental capacity to look at ourselves from the outside. And actually, uh, uh, recognise that we are an entity. So sometimes we talk to ourselves, but listen carefully to how God talks to Himself. Let us make man in our image. That's not me talk like me talking to myself. No, that, that that's not one. That's more than one. God refers to Himself in the plural when discuss when discussing the creation of man. Let us make man in our image. Why didn't he do that for the rest of creation? Because this was something special. This was worth a declaration and a conversation within the Godhead himself. This is a declaration from the Trinity. You see, all the rest of creation was not created in his image. Not the birds, not the mammals, not the fish of the sea, no, no, um, uh, nothing physical, nothing was created, nothing else was created in His image. The rest of creation was not capable of understanding God, apart from the angels that are separate and that live in live in heaven. But everything that God created in the physical universe in which we live doesn't have the capacity. Was, nor was created in God's image, nor can have an appreciation of the truth that we are made in the image of the triune God. In this one verse, God plainly reveals his plural nature. But just to make clear that he is only one God, when he created mankind, have a look at verse, the very next verse, verse 27. So God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. The very next verse says, verse 27, So God created man in his own, in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And what is the image of man? What is the image of God in man? What makes him so special compared to the rest of creation? Well, the Bible says that we are created tripartite beings we have three parts that make us one being. We are composed, according to the Bible, of three parts, which work synergistically together to make one person. True, we're not infinite. True, we are not three distinct persons. Like, I can't talk to my soul and my spirit and my body and have a conversation between myself. But there is no other being living that God has created that has three parts like us not animals not plants not even the angels have three parts like we do turn with me to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 and the apostle Paul here is talking about our salvation and how we have been sanctified or separated to God we've been taken out of the world And brought into God's presence and set aside for him. So the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he says there, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, unified, completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many is there? Three: the Bible tells us that, that according to God's amazing uh, plan of salvation, every facet of me, completely, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, is sanctified to God, holy, together. But with me, He's sanctified, and with you, He's sanctified three separate things which make us together. You see, we still go on and exist. Our physical bodies may die, but your soul and your spirit continue to live on. Does that make sense? So even though we even may be separated from that point of view, we may not be completely three in one at one particular time. We still exist. Some people believe that we're only made of two, that we are made of body and soul or body and spirit, and the soul and the spirit are one and the same thing. Well, according to that scripture, it's wrong. It's we're not just made of two. We are made of three. And that would go a long way to explaining why God sees us is created in his image. Turn with me, just to just to make it clear that the soul and the spirit are two separate things. Go to Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve with me. Just just to eradicate any thought that the soul and the spirit are somehow exactly the same thing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, which means to separate completely the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what? It's saying that the, the Word of God is like a sword that is able to separate those two things. It can actually divide and actually show you those two things separately. Everything in that verse can be separated. Joints can be separated from marrow. Your marrow is inside your bones, and joints are what uh, is a cartilage that puts it together, keeps your bones together. Can you separate those? Yes, you can. Can you separate thoughts and intents? Yes, you can. Because my thoughts are one thing, but my intention is something else. Those two things can be perfectly separated. So the Bible tells us here that God's word can even separate and reveal the division between the soul and the spirit. And it does. So we are made, and the Bible clearly teaches that we are made of body, soul, and spirit. And the Bible says we have been created in God's image we were created to reflect the glory of God to be his image upon the earth but we know that man fell and that image became marred so the world did no longer or did not could not see that image in us anymore but let's have a look at what happens let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And let's see what happens once again when man does fall, when that image is marred. And let's see what God has to say about it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. So keep in mind so when God created us, he has a conversation with himself. And he says, We and us. When man falls and the image of God in man becomes marred, look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The Bible says, "And the Lord God said, "Man, uh, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever." That's a interesting uh, phrase, isn't it? Have you, ever, have you ever known someone so well that you complete the, the rest of the sentence, or you know exactly what they're saying before they even finish a sentence? I'm sure those of you who are married or those of you who are in the same family, sometimes you know midway through a sentence exactly what your loved one is saying. Well, you know what? God's having a conversation with himself. This is the Trinity saying, he's become like they've become man because they fell and they gained the knowledge of good and evil in a moment. God said, they've become like one of us. They know good and evil. And if they take of the tree of life and eat. Yes, it means they're going to live forever separated from us. So God says they become like one of us. But just to make it clear that there's only one God, verse 23 then tells us, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So, verse 24, he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. In other words, he forbade man to live forever because, and if they they kept on eating from the tree of life, they would have lived forever. But that would have meant that they lived forever in a fallen state, separated from God, never able to be reunited, never able to be um saved and restored, you see god's plan is to restore his image in us. that brokenness that we have is the brokenness of those three ever um taken something very precious like a vase um or pottery or something or something that's very precious and fragile, and you drop it on the ground and it breaks in many pieces. What was one? become shattered. That's what happened to mankind. God's plan was to restore us together. But if we lived forever, we would always be broken. And every and every generation afterward would continue to be broken because they are created, they are then made in our image. We pass on our image to them. There are some who refuse to believe in the Trinity, who try to get around these verses, believe it or not, um, where God refers to himself as us during creation and the creation of man by saying that, oh, he must have been referring to the angels when he, was, he had the angels around him and said they'd become like one of us, like the angels, or let us create man in our image. This is really an excuse to deny the obvious. There are no scripture verses that indicate that the angels had anything to do with creation whatsoever. But some cults, as Brother Alan has shared this morning, um, that you can do the litmus test on, some cults even teach that Jesus was an angel. And that somehow God used a created being, they say Jesus was the first thing he created, a created being, he used him, an angel, to create the universe and man. Both of these, these notions are false. God never asked angels. And, and Jesus was never an angel that he would, that he would get him to make the, the universe because the Bible says the exact opposite. So did God say, let, let, let's make man in our image because angels were somehow involved? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. And we'll see that God puts a complete stop to that notion that somehow the angels whom he created were somehow involved in this particular discussion. God is not having a discussion with the angels. Look what it says. And God did not create the universe with the angels. Isaiah 44, verse 24. God can't make it any clearer than this. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. God can't make it any clearer. No one else was involved in creation. No one else. No created being, no angels, nothing, no one else was involved. He did it alone and by himself. Now, where were the angels though? What were they doing? Well, turn back to Job chapter or turn to Job chapter 38, verse 4 with me. Job chapter 38, verse 4, because God has an amazing conversation with Job and his and his, essentially putting Job back in his place because Job was becoming a little bit too silly with his discussion. And and God has a discussion with uh, Job and has this conversation. And, and, and this is the discourse. Job 38, 4 says, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? And who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Hang All the morning. So God lays the foundation, stretches the line upon the earth, lays the foundation. and, and, And he's saying to Job, where were you when I did all of this? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You know who they are? They're all the angels. All of them. He says in verse 7, and all the sons of God. You see, God created the angels and they got to see the earth being formed. They got to see the foundation being laid and they shouted for joy when God spoke the physical universe into existence. No, there was no angel that helped God create the universe. He did it all alone. He did it all by himself. They went on to be able to witness that amazing event. Can you imagine God speaking and the universe comes into existence or the, or the world? They see the world being formed layer upon layer and seas and everything else that goes on, the fish and the mammals and, and man and trees and plants, and they would have been just flabbergasted so elohim is a plural word the word for one is a compound word love has three components to it and god has a conversation to himself where he refers to himself as us does it seem as if god is trying to show us something here Does it seem as if God has dropped a number of breadcrumbs along the way for us to follow this particular path from the very beginning? Yes. Turn back with me to the very beginning again. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back one more time to Genesis to wrap this this sermon up and I hope you've, uh, you've been blessed by what you've seen today. But let's go back one more time right to the beginning and we're going to see the Trinity in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In the first three verses of the, of the Bible, the first just three verses of the Bible, we see the Trinity in the act of creation. Now, let me ask a question. We know that God is infinite. We know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at the same time. There is no place that God is not that he can somehow hide from me in a particular corner or in a dark place. And David realized that. Do you remember that, that passage in, uh, in uh, Psalm 139 where David looks and says, it's too wonderful for me. It doesn't matter where I go. I can be up in heaven. I can go down to hell. I can be in the other, in, uh, to the other most part of the sea. You're there. You are everywhere. It's, this is too much for me to understand. God is infinite. He is everywhere all at the same time. God doesn't have to travel. But why? does God have to mention that His Spirit is moving upon the face of the waters? What is He saying in verse 2 then, than as the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters? If He was already everywhere. Because God wants to understand that He is distinct and that He was active in creating the universe. How did God create the universe? Well, we've seen it. He speaks it into existence. So we have God the Father, we have the Spirit hovering upon, uh, upon the face of the waters. And the Bible then says that God speaks it in everything into existence. He created the universe using the word. Turn with me to John chapter one, verse one. Because God, John identifies What that word or who that word is, how did God create the universe? What is this word that He spoke that He was able to create everything just with words? Well, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You know who John says the Word is? John said the Word is the Son of God, who we know as Jesus Christ. See, the Son of God existed for all all of eternity in heaven, and He is the Word. And He came down to the earth and was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He we know by name, as Jesus. John makes it very clear in his gospel that the Word through whom God created all the universe was God. And that Word is Jesus Christ. So if you ever wonder how God created everything with a Word, the Word is Jesus Christ. And this is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple more examples. Ephesians chapter three verse 9. Ephesians chapter three verse 9 says, "And to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ." Colossians chapter one, verse 15 and 16 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or the, or the preeminent one of every creature. For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the Word. The Trinity has been already shown to us in the first three verses of the Bible in creation. God could not have made it any clearer. He alone created the universe. He did it all by himself. And himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. The only solution is that God is a trinity in one. And this is the God that we've been called to love with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our might we are called to love god completely that as as tripartite beings as as beings made of three parts god wants our love completely towards him and that's why god redeems us completely that's why god puts us that broken vase back together again and creates a whole new vase again you know The creation of the universe is also a picture of our salvation. Just as God created the universe as Father, Son and Holy Ghost, the Bible says that when it comes to saving us, all three were active in our salvation to save us from the darkness of sin. To save us from sin and to save us from an existence alienated forever from Him. It's God who first created light. And when you have the light of God revealed in Jesus Christ to you, you can be saved from darkness. And if you have been saved through Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are a new creature, a new creation in Jesus. Our salvation is a picture of creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, God still creates. He creates through His Word. And that's been manifest in the Bible that you can hold in your hands. Because God still speaks the Word and he, he speaks it to you through his bible the holy spirit actually shows you that what it means if the holy spirit is in your heart those words begin to have life and create life in you god still creates it was God the Father who loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. It was the Son who loved us so much that He went to the cross to willingly pay for our sins. It is the Holy Spirit who loves us so much that, he's, that He came into our hearts to seal us forever, to be with God. He quickened our spirit. He made us alive again through Jesus. And we do that and we can have that Simply by repenting, which means changing your mind and believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for your sins. Believing in God's plan for you and putting your faith in Him. He paid for all of your sins because He loves you so much. He loved us with all of His being. He loved us completely and He calls us to love Him. But you know what? You can't love God completely until you have been restored and saved through Jesus Christ, only then can you begin to love God as He loves us. Will you not be rescued by Him today? This is love, that He first loved us. Once you have experienced the love of God in your life through Jesus Christ, then you can really love God, and you'll understand what genuine love is, and you'll understand why he's a trinity and what that means to us. God bless you all. I hope you have an awesome week. I pray that you get closer to God this week. Read his word, stay strong in the faith and always remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and with all your mind. God bless you.